please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll be studying verses 1 through 10 in our time together this morning. If you grab the Bible that is uh, in front of you, under the seat in front of you, that should be on page, someone shout it out for me, 575, 575, I left my notes on the uh, seat there, sorry about that. This is Isaiah chapter 11. As you turn there, uh, I want to just remind you two weeks ago uh, that Pastor Kevin spent some time in Isaiah chapter 9. I thought he did an excellent job in that chapter. And and really, Isaiah 7 all the way to chapter 12, verse 6, is is sort of like a mini unit within the the, the rest of the book of Isaiah. And so uh, commentators and and others have called it the book of Emmanuel. Because in chapter 7, you get the promise uh, that the virgin will give birth and that he will be named Emmanuel. And then you get in chapter 9, the wonderful promise that a child is born, a son is given, which we've just been singing about, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so when you, when you uh, see these, these passages, they're just so rich with expectation uh, that we have to just be in awe and marvel over the things that are revealed to us and the things that have been promised. And that picture of the coming Messiah is, is, gains a little bit more detail in chapter 11. And so let's pick up in chapter 11, reading in, from verse 1 to verse 10 for our time together. The word of God reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Lord, I can barely contain my excitement for the things promised in this passage. So much so that I drop my sermon everywhere. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wisdom and the knowledge that you have revealed in it. Thank you, Lord, that we see over and over, time and time again, that you are a God who makes promises and you are a God who keeps your promises to your people. Lord, you do what all of us have failed to do. You keep your word. Lord, you have never uttered an empty promise, but we have, oh God. Because we are weak and we are frail and we are sinful and we are unfaithful and, and we overpromise, Lord, and we, we underdeliver. Lord, we are but dust, but you are God and you are powerful and you are good and you care about the affairs of this world, Lord, so that even when we went astray with our first father, Adam and Eve, Lord, you promised a deliverer. You promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. Even though the offspring of man has been evil in all the inclinations of his heart, evil all the time, Lord, you could have removed us all but you are gracious God to preserve a remnant of people through Noah, your servant and his family, God. And you repopulated the earth after destroying it in judgment, oh God. Lord, we are thankful that you called Abraham and that you promised that you would make of him, you'd make his name great and that you would make of him a great nation and that in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That because Abraham didn't withhold his son from you, you, Lord, would not withhold your son from us. You'd give a seed. You would give a promised descendant of Abraham. You would would give a promised king from Judah. You would give a, a promised son of David, the king, who would restore that nation Israel that went astray and who would turn all the nations who have been raging against you back towards you such that the end picture is the knowledge of the Lord covering the world. Thank you that you accomplished that through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you've revealed that to us through your word. That the Messiah that was promised and proclaimed by the prophets in the Old Testament showed up right on time 
and did exactly what he was supposed to do for us and for our salvation. So Lord, may we be in awe of you and the gift of your son this morning. May we have hearts overflowing with joy in this Advent season. Help us to better understand who this coming one is and what he has done and what he will bring, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why such a big deal, oh Christians, about this baby in the manger? Why do you get so excited about this story? What is it that that causes you joy that even though you don't even have a command in the Bible, you shift the structure and order of your life to focus time specifically at this point of the year thinking about this person? What is it about him, Christians, that you're so excited about? What is it about him that brings you such great joy? What is it about him that causes you to sing? What is it about him? And what, it is, what, is it, what is it that you believe that he will bring that causes you to wait with eager expectation, even though some of the promises given concerning him have yet to be fulfilled? Why is it that you sing this Advent season and talk so much and think so much and, and, and wait so fervently for Jesus? We understand that God has promised a king. This king was mentioned in Isaiah 7. He would be born of a virgin This king is mentioned in chapter nine of Isaiah, that he would be a great light, that he would sit on the throne of his father, David, and that there would be peace and that of his kingdom, there would be no end. These things give us a glimpse of the promises given to us concerning the Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we get another glimpse. And I just want you to know, anytime that you guys are reading the prophets, anytime you're reading one chapter or one passage, you have to know that you're just getting a tiny slice of the pie. The the, the Old Testament is filled with predictions concerning the Messiah. And so when we come to a passage like this, it's glorious and we just want to take it in and we're going to focus right here on it. But we have to understand that it is still just a small piece of the whole pie that's been promised. And so with that understanding, then we can look and we can appreciate what's just given to us here in our time this morning. And I believe that the main idea of this passage is that we see who the hope of the ages is and what he will bring so that our hearts may overflow with joy and hope this Advent season over the gift of Jesus Christ. You see, the world will never understand and, and, and those of you who, who look at others, you're like, why, why do you get so excited about Jesus? We get so excited about Jesus because of what the prophet said that he would do, who he is and what he would bring. This 
these are the reasons that our hearts sing. So I hope that when you look at this passage, when you study it with me in this time, that you're gonna go home overjoyed in what's been promised to us. And that you will see that we have an unfading, unconquerable hope given to us in the scriptures. And so the first question we'll ask is, who is coming? That's what this passage will address. Second, what he will bring. What will he bring? And then third, I want to close by asking that the question, which I think is very practical, and it's a question raised by even uh, Jewish rabbis who don't believe in Jesus. And I think you have to deal with it as you think about this passage as a Christian. If Jesus is this one who was promised to come, and he's promised to bring certain things, where are those things? Where are those things? I think that that's a crucial and important question. So that'll be our third question. I think by asking that, we can pull together the different, the different threads and themes of this text and apply it to, uh, to our lives in a practical way that will encourage us. So let's begin with our glimpse of glory of the hope of the ages by, by asking this question, who is coming? Who is coming? And there's three things, three ways that, that this coming one is described in our passage. And, and the first one is this, is that the one who is coming is the promised king. Now, it doesn't say he, he is king in, the, in this passage, but the activities that he is described as doing show us as much. We see that he is going to judge and decide disputes and that he is going to decide with equity the meek of the earth, and he is going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And so here is the, the work that a king does. He establishes a kingdom. He rules over that kingdom. He judges between disputes within that kingdom. He, he makes sure that he protects the rights of, of the poor. He makes sure that there's no partiality taking, taking root in his kingdom. He's seeking to make his kingdom a righteous kingdom. And so we see that this coming one is a king. Moreover, that's hinted at to us by the fact that this, uh, this one is, is said to have the spirit of the Lord rest upon him. If you're reading through your, your Old Testament uh, up to this point, you'll know that there were a number of different figures that the spirit of God would come upon or rush upon or empower. And those figures were for the most part prophets, priests, and kings. And so the one described here uh, uh, by the fact that the spirit of the Lord is coming upon him uh, is likely then uh, a prophet, a priest, or a king. Uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert. He's all three. But the fact that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him is reminiscent of how the spirit was given to Saul, but then Saul rebelled and the spirit was taken away. And then the spirit of the Lord was rushed upon David when David was anointed king uh, so that he would have wisdom, so that he could lead the people. And God promised that he would never take his spirit from David nor from David's son. And so the spirit of the Lord is a gift given from God to his anointed king. God's the one who does the choosing. God's the one who does the anointing. The spirit of the Lord comes down upon this king when the father sends the spirit. 
The Spirit goes and the Spirit blesses and the Spirit empowers and the Spirit endows with special gifts. And so that's what we see in this passage. So this one coming is, is a promised king. Secondly, the one who is coming is the offspring of Jesse. This is given to us in the first verse, and this ties in with the idea of a, a king being promised. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel is heartbroken and grieving because God had told Samuel to anoint Saul as king, and Saul ended up being a bad king who rejected the Lord, and the Lord rejected him. And when, when that becomes known to Samuel, Samuel's heartbroken. And you know what God says to Samuel? He says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn and, with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You guys, if you, you, you probably remember this scene. Uh, Samuel comes and s tells Jesse, look, one of your sons is going to be king. The Lord has sent me to anoint one of your sons as king. And, and Jesse's like, okay, cool. Let me gather my sons. And he gathers all the sons. And Samuel's looking at them. Uh, and he's trying to pay attention to what God's saying to him. Uh, and, and God tells him, look, don't look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And Samuel's like, I'm looking at your sons. Is this all of them? Because I don't think that one God is going to choose is here. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's one other. Uh, he's the littlest. He's the young guy. He's taking care of the sheep right now. Uh, you want me to call him? And so, yeah, he calls, calls him over. And, and it says that, you know, uh, that he was, uh, he was ruddy and, you know, uh, and, and, and handsome or whatever, um, but small and, and insignificant compared to the rest of his brothers. And, and there he sees the one whom the Lord has chosen. <laughs> if it was up to Samuel and, and Jesse uh, to pick the king, it probably would have been any of the other brothers before David. But God is the one who's sovereign. He's the one doing the choosing. He's the one doing the anointing. He's the one leading the show. And so he's gonna choose who he is gonna choose. And so it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. What are some cool things that happened right after that? Do you remember? David ended up being the brave one who would go and attack the Philistine giant, Goliath, and take out his smooth stones and put it in his sling and throw it and drill him between the eyes and then take Goliath's sword and slice off his head and protect God's people from being defeated and conquered by the Philistines and being wiped off the earth. God brought deliverance through David, and he was anointed king, but he had to wait. He had to wait for time until Saul was, was removed from being king, and then eventually David becomes king. And David, we know that even though he slayed Goliath, even though God used him to, to bring deliverance to Israel and protection to Israel, we know that he, uh, he also made a huge, huge glaring sin against the Lord with the issue of Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. He committed adultery with Bathsheba 
and he had Uriah essentially killed in battle purposefully to try to cover up his sin. And Nathan the prophet rebuked him over that and he received that rebuke and he humbled himself and he was considered, even despite that occasion, he was considered a man after God's own heart. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good king. He wasn't though the king that had been promised. In fact, God says that that king would be one of David's sons. And so if you turn to 1 Chronicles 17, uh, we read in this passage, it says that in verse three, the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build a house to, for, for, for me to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to, to this day, but I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all the places where I've moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what's he saying here? When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt uh, with Moses and then into the promised land with Joshua, the whole time they're wandering around in the wilderness and then, the, and then for about 400 years at Shiloh in the promised land, God just dwelt in the tabernacle, which is like, it's just, just the tent structure, right? And so David's like, he, he, he's been given so much success and so much favor and so much prosperity that he himself has this house of cedar and he begins to feel bad. And he's like, he's like looking at his, his temple palace and he's like looking at the tent of God, you know? And he's like, oh man, like I need to fix this. I need to do something for God here. Oh, Lord, let me build you a house. And God's like, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he speaks then of a royal dynasty lineage that he would promise David, the promised king, that, that promised seed of, 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 uh, of Eve, that, that promised son of Abraham, that promised king of Judah would be a son of David. And so the Lord promises him here. He says, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. And moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. And when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up, hear this, your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. In accord with all these words, his throne, or excuse me, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so you can see here this crucial promise especially for the storyline of the Bible. The reason why uh, when you get to the years uh, b before Isaiah and during Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is prophesying in the midst of this, this, this sort of section of history that it's after the period of the judges, uh, which is about a 400, peri 400 year period. Uh, and it's this, this period where, where there's kings. You have, you have 
Saul first, then you have David, then you have Solomon. But unfortunately, after Solomon, you have, you have uh, his son Rehoboam causes a split and you have the, united, the nation that was united under David and was enjoying prosperity and peace under David and Solomon gets fractured and broken apart so that the one nation becomes two nations, two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern has, uh, is also sometimes referred to as uh, Ephraim. Uh, it has its capital city uh, is Samaria and the southern has the city of Jerusalem. And so unfortunately, as you look at these catalog of the kings in this divided kingdom, uh, you do see there keeps being another descendant of David, another descendant of David. And one, the only, the, well, one of the main things that the, the, the South, the Southern kingdom does right is they hold tight to the promise of God that he would provide a Davidic king. And so you could not be king there unless you had Davidic royal lineage. Uh, that's the way uh, that, they, that they were seeking to obey the Lord. But the North, when they got mad uh, at, at Rehoboam, they split apart and they were, called, they were essentially in rebellion against that promise of God. God had promised a, a king of David and they said, we don't wanna have any portion. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. And so they rebelled against the Southern kingdom. They should have been united under a Davidic king, but they weren't. And you just see the downfall of this and you're waiting. Where's the Davidic king? Where's the Davidic king? And it seems like it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it does until eventually after the time of Isaiah, you, you, have, you, have, Israel, uh, you have Israel conquered uh, and you, by the Assyrians and you have eventually long, about 150 years after that, Judah, the southern kingdom conquered by the Babylonians. And so the time that we are in right here, we see that this promised one, who is the hope of the ages, is David's son, the son of Jesse. A branch, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his, his roots shall bear fruit. You see, even if Israel tries to destroy you, Judah and Jerusalem, even if they try to throw you away and rid you from the land, even if they team up with Syria and try to attack you and level you, even if you're weak, even if you are, you are attacked, even if Assyria comes, who I'm going to use as my rod of judgment upon the northern kingdom, and in that judgment, they're not only going to wreak havoc on the northern kingdom, they're going to come into your land, even up to the very point of your neck, knocking on the doors of Jerusalem. They're gonna come that close, but they will never break my promise to you. A son of Jesse, a son of David will come. Even if all that's left is just a stump, there's gonna be a shoot that comes forth from that stump. My mom and I, uh, in, our, in our garden in the back, we have this uh, apricot tree. And uh, I told her not to cut it down. Uh, I liked it, but she's like, it doesn't bear any fruit. So she, she cut it down herself. Uh, she just gets, gets work done like that. Um, but then we notice 
uh, we start seeing stuff shooting up out of the ground and, and we're like, oh, look at that. I wonder what that is. You know, you get your phone out. If you guys don't have that app where you could take the picture of the, uh, uh, of, of, you know, whatever it is, a flower or a plant and it, it identifies it for you, right? I love that thing. So, oh, what's this? You know, I, oh, it's an apricot tree. Oh, interesting. But I thought we could chop that thing down. Like, what's going on here, right? And it, and it keeps shooting up. And then we pull out that one and cut that one down. And another shoot, like, it's crazy. So there's some stump down under there. This is going to keep shooting up stuff, right? And so the same similar idea is, is being used to describe uh, and, and give hope to the southern kingdom. Even if in... in all this terrible things happening, even if, if the, the international situation or the, 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 the situation with Israel, whoever tries to come against you and destroy you and level you and leave you just a stump, still my promise will not be broken because I will provide the shoot of Jesse. And so you can be encouraged and you could take comfort and you don't need to fear. You don't need to fear what they can do to you because I will be faithful. I will fulfill my promise. And so this one promised is from the stump of Jesse. He is the son of David, a descendant of David. And this leads to the third thing that we are shown about him. He is one who is uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit. So we have a, a promised king who is of a royal line of Jesse who God uh, promised to David that one of David's sons will sit on the throne. So God hasn't changed his plan. He hasn't changed his promises. And in fact, to give even more confidence and more hope, here's a glimpse of what his life is going to look like. He is one who is uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses two uh, and three together. It says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so what we see in these in these verses is a stark contrast to King Ahaz, uh, who's likely the king when Isaiah is, is, is prophesying here. Uh, king Ahaz makes a lot of bad choices. He, he, he's clearly uh, not one who is making wise and understanding decisions. He's not one who's leading with counsel and might in the fear of the Lord. Rather, he's prideful, he's insecure, and he's unwilling to wholly trust in the Lord. What a contrast. The day is coming when you're not going to have these bozo kings anymore. Oh, I know you're languishing under your leaders. I know that they drive you crazy. I know that they do not fear me and they don't not, not set apart my name as holy. But the day is coming when you're not going to have to deal with any of these boneheads anymore. A true king is coming. The king that I have promised, the king from Jesse. And this king will have the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And he will have, oh, the Spirit's wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge, and he will fear the Lord. How many of you want a leader like that? When your leader can lead you into international affairs that threaten you and your family and your whole nation's lives, do you want a bonehead in that situation? Do you want someone who's, who's just playing fast and loose with, with God's righteous law? No, you want someone who is going to fear the Lord and lead the people as a shepherd to fear the Lord with me. As for me and my kingdom, we will fear the Lord. That's exactly the type of person promised here. 
And you have to know that that never comes by flesh. That never comes by human effort. That comes by supernatural endowment and gift of God through the power of the third person of the triune God resting and working through a person, the Holy Spirit. So, oh man, what a... What, what a delight it would be to have this king. Oh, we would, we would love to have this king now. Oh man, imagine him with, with, with wisdom and understanding. You guys remember the, the situation where, where uh, Solomon asked of the Lord wisdom so that he could rule the people righteously. And God was pleased with that response. And so he poured out wisdom on Solomon. And the effect of that was that he had more wisdom than all the kings of the East. He was the wisest man alive. And so can you only imagine when one comes who's greater in wisdom than even Solomon, when the Holy Spirit rests on him in a, in a unique way that he enjoys the wisdom and understanding that only the Holy Spirit gives. We see also he's described as having the spirit of counsel and might. If you remember earlier in Isaiah 9, uh, one of the names for this child to be born is, is wonderful what? Counselor. Uh, when you have turbulent situations in your nation or, or in your relationship with other nations and nations are rising up against nations uh, and you're trying to figure out what we should do and what we should do with our lives here and right now, do you want somebody who is weak and, and, and just low and, and off base with their counsel? Absolutely not. You want the best counsel that you can get. What are we to do right now? How do we respond to this situation? You need someone who has the spirit of counsel resting upon them and also the spirit of might. You not only need him to know what the right things to do is and how to give the right counsel and how to lead in that way, but you need him to have might and strength and power to follow through with it. That even if it looks like the earth is gonna melt, even if it, if it looks like this is, this is humanly impossible, you follow through, you have strength, you hold to the word of God, you trust in the Lord, and you go into battle. You do whatever you need to do for the Lord. You lead the nation. This is the king you want with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in fear of the Lord. In the book of Proverbs, we, we read that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We, 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 we read about how knowledge of the, of the Holy One is understanding. Uh, we, 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 we read about the fact that the most important thing about a person, about you, and about this king, is this, that you know the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, that he fears me, right? So the, this is the, the best thing that, they, that could, you could have, that you could do. This would be the most important thing about you is that you are a person who knows the Lord. You yourself know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know this, this Lord who has made these promises and who has promised this king. And this king will know the Lord. 
This king will fear the Lord. The Holy Spirit will will be upon him such that he will walk in perfect obedience to the Lord. If you fear the Lord, that means that you trust him. If you fear the Lord, that means that you seek to obey his commandments. If you fear the Lord, that means that you turn away from evil. If you will not turn away from evil, if you will not obey his commands, if you will not put your faith and trust in him and seek to please and glorify only him, then you have not learned the very first thing about being wise, which is to fear God. Do you fear him this morning? If you look at this and you're like, yeah, that's the type of king I would want. Uh, well, what do you think maybe we could just, just draw an application real quick? What do you think maybe, you know, our children want? I want a dad that fears the Lord. What do our wives want? We, they want husbands who fear the Lord. We, we, we want brothers and sisters in Christ serving in a local church together that fear the Lord. Those who, who put their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ has, has showered his Holy Spirit upon them so that they have wisdom and understanding and knowledge in the fear of the Lord. And they're loving him and they're seeking to keep his commandments. If you realize this is, yeah, that's what you need to be a king. That is the same things you need to be a husband. It's the same things you need to be a, a boss. A, it's the same things you need to be a student. It's the same things you need to, to, to be a person who honors God and is a blessing to all those who are around him. And again, it's only made possible by the work of God's spirit. And so we're told that he will have his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Seeking to please men is one of the great dangers of a king. Fear of man, Paul says that if I were, you know, afraid of men, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. Because it's the fear of man that will keep me from fearing the Lord. It's the fear of man that will keep me from obeying the Lord. It's the fear of man that will keep me from doing the hard and difficult thing to speak up and to do what's right and to call someone to repentance and to say, no, that is evil. It's the fear of God that, ha- that will, will produce that in me. And so we should seek it. We should love it. We should delight in it. We should, we should love it so much that we surround ourselves with those types of, of people. And so this should be our delight, and it's this promised king's delight as well. And so when we look at this, we see who he is. Uh, he is a, a, a coming king who is of the line of David and who has a supernatural special endowment of the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And so that should give us an unconquerable, unconquerable hope in the promises of God. This king will come. He's still future for them when Isaiah is prophesying. And for us, we've seen that he has come, that he has been born, that he has been supernaturally endowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
we see that the Holy Spirit, according to the testimony of the gospel writers, came down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. We see that this is the promised beloved son as a voice from heaven bears witness to it. We see that he's filled with counsel and with might. We see him perform miracles that that no human being could, could ever do on their own. We see him uniquely endowed with the spirit of God to do the types of things that are promised in this passage. And we ourselves get the joy of knowing him. We get the joy of tasting of that heavenly gift of his spirit that he has given to us so that we ourselves too could walk and live out these same attributes. Even if it may be to a lesser degree than him. May that encourage you, church. May that encourage you. May that give you insight into how we are to live here and now. And this should give Israel insight how they were to live while they were still waiting. uh, And as they are still waiting uh, for this king to come and to do the things that this passage talks about. And so we we hit on uh, who he, uh, who, who is coming. We move now to second is what he will bring. And as we look at this passage, we we see that he will bring every good thing that you could ever hope a king to bring. Everything that you think, uh, uh, you know, that would mark a king, a great king, this is what he's going to bring. He's going to bring justice. I'm going to hold off on giving you the other two. I'll make you earn them. Keep keep filling in your fill in the blanks. (laughs) He will bring justice. Look at this in verses three through five. It says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins." And so we see the, the justice that this king will bring. You do not have to worry that, that hey, no, no, no one's ever going to fix this, that there will never be vengeance, that there will never be justice. You do not have to worry about that. You do not need to take vengeance into your own hands when you realize that the one who is promised and who will come will be sure to exact vengeance in perfect proportion to what is required You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. You can be at peace. You can be patient. You can be at rest in God and what he has promised. He's going to come and and he will bring justice. And, And no king is worthy of the title king unless he's seeking to bring justice for his people. Why? Because the people instantly, if they're living under an immoral and an unjust king, what are the people going to want to do? Kill the king. <laughs> Isn't that like, the, like every history story that we've ever read? Uh, the, the king did, did, did evil and he abused and, you know, uh, neglected the people and he did all these bad things to them. And so uh, they got killed. They hired an assassin or, you know, whatever. Uh, that... Th- No king is worth their salt if they're not seeking to establish their kingdom with righteousness. And it's no different for the Lord. He will be the perfect king. He will be for the people. He will help the people. He will heal the people. He will shepherd the people. He will protect the people. He will bind up their wounds. He will go to battle for them. He will judge and decide disputes in order to keep unity. 
He will uproot all partiality and all injustice from his kingdom. This is what a good, righteous king does. He brings justice to the land and to his kingdom. This is seen practically in two ways that our passage says. It says that the, the, he will not judge by what his eyes see. What does that mean? In other words, I think this is talking about not showing favor to a person based upon appearances. That he will not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. You know that looks can be deceiving, right? You know that, 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 that just by, by looking at a person, you can have your own sort of dispositions to, to agree with them or to reject them in spite of even hearing any evidence. So this, this king will not judge by what his eyes see. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Moreover, it says that he will not decide disputes by, by what his ears hear. And this one, I was, uh, as, I'm thinking about, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, that's super interesting. What does this mean? And I thought first about the, the, the verse that talks about how, uh, you know, the one who speaks first seems right until another comes and tries them. I was kind of thinking about that. Uh, but then I think with the parallel of the, the you know, not showing, uh, not, not judging by what his eyes see, and I think that that clearly showing uh, that he will not be partial to the rich or to the poor uh, or to, to, to the wealthy or, or, or to those who are, who are lowly. Uh, I think the same thing is here. I think that you can judge a person. There's a temptation to judge a person. Say you closed your eyes and say you just heard them speak. Guess what you could still do? You could judge them based on what they sounded like without even seeing any of the evidence. You could say, oh, that person's speech is broken. Oh, that person's speech is too lofty. Oh, that person's speech sounds prideful. Oh, that person's speech sounds like like they are a poor person. Oh, that person's speech sounds like whatever it may be. And so I think the idea here is again, no partiality. This is a righteous judge who is just, who, who assesses and examines the evidence and the hearts of the issue. And he does not show any partiality. He judges by equity. He is a righteous judge. And we not only see that he judges the, 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 the poor uh, rightly, but he also judges the wicked. And we see this in verse four. It says the judgment of the wicked, uh, says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And this passage, I think, is, is, is interesting because uh, I think one of the temptations of a king is to be soft on evil, to be soft on wickedness, to not deal with the evildoer and with the wicked and give them the punishment that is rightfully deserving to them. And then what happens is when you don't do that as a king, you begin to have a kingdom filled with people who are not repenting and who are not uh, turning from their sin and are just doing evil and, and wrecking havoc. And so I think the justice is shown in that he is willing to kill the wicked when necessary when in accord with his righteous judgment. Proverbs 25 verse five says, take away the wicked from the presence of the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. And being 
having the spirit of might upon him, he has the, he has the most powerful word. He has the authoritative word. He has the word that decides life or death for a person in his kingdom. And he will decide death for those who are unrepentant and who are wicked and who insist on not turning from their evil ways. Be warned. Be warned and warn others. This king is coming and the wicked will have no place in his kingdom. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, that the lawless one, speaking of in the last days, the, 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 the lawless one or, uh, or, the, uh, or the Antichrist uh, who will be revealed, it says the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And this seems to match really well as well with uh, the, the first or the, the second coming of the Messiah that is revealed in Revelation chapter 19. It describes him as coming down out of heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth, which, which, uh, with which he strikes down the wicked. And, it, and it's in that scene, you have the nations gathering around together, uh, pulling all their armies together, following the, false, the Antichrist uh, and the false prophet to make war on Christ and his saints as he comes down from heaven. And it says in verse uh, 15 of, of chapter 19 uh, that a, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And a few verses later, it says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of, that burns with fire, excuse me, that burns with sulfur. And hear this, and the rest speaking of these kings and their armies. So the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Uh, I don't know if he just says the word and they just drop dead. Uh, I don't know, perhaps the plague described in Zechariah 14, verse 12, where, where it says that the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and your, their tongues will rot in their mouths. God can do that with just the speaking of his word. So I don't know exactly how it's gonna take place, but what I do know is that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. You know what he's going to do? Slay the wicked. There's no playing around with him. He will be a righteous, just king. And those who refuse to repent will have no place in his kingdom. And, and so uh, it's possible that at the return of Christ in Revelation 19, uh, that you, uh, you have that, that, that instance of, of him striking uh, the earth and slaying the wicked there. Uh, but, but so essentially uh, establishing justice and authority over the earth at that point from Jerusalem. But then also we, we see uh, that there's a maintaining of that sort of uh, authority and justice as well. And this is shown to us in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. It says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of booths. 
And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to worship uh, to, to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. And there shall be a plague uh, with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of booths. So, What's this describing? It's describing an establishment of his righteousness and his kingdom when he comes in Revelation 19 uh, and, and then the maintaining of his righteousness in that kingdom, which we see Satan is bound in Revelation chapter 20, put, put into the abyss for a thousand years, uh, while those who have believed in Christ are, are, are come to resurrection life and reign with Christ in that kingdom for a thousand years. But that kingdom still has, that still has uh, nations and, and and other people who have not been glorified yet. And so there's still sin and there's still bearing of children and there's still deciding disputes between nations. There's still uh, caring uh, for the poor that needs to be happened because they're still being uh, taken advantage of. There's still all these different types of things that are mentioned in our passage that need to be under his judgment and he will bring justice. Some of you guys know the slogan, no justice, no peace. And I think that that is a good, accurate slogan, depending on the context. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, The problem is, and this is where, where we fall short, is we are so bad at figuring out what is just. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We need someone who really know it well, like way better than we do. And when he implements justice, you know what's gonna immediately follow? Peace. Peace, 100%. He is the prince of peace. All the problems, all the disputes, all the fighting, he is gonna have the definitive answer to. And there will be peace. And so that's what we see. First, he's going to bring justice, and then he will be bring peace. And there is no peace without justice first. You have to know that. But the peace comes, and the peace comes because the justice has been established. And the peace in this picture, uh, the peace shown in, this, in this, this passage, the picture that's painted for us, I think is quite amazing. Let's read verses 6 through 10. It says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. What, what is this saying? Do, I, uh, do lions eat straw like an ox right now? Can, can a little child play with a, a wolf and a lamb and take a wolf and a lamb and a leopard and a young goat and a calf and a lion and a fattened cow? What? How do you think, uh, uh, how, how many friends are made between a lion and a fattened calf? <laughs> if you're a fattened calf... <laughs> No offense. <laughs> if you're a fattened calf, do you want to hang out with a lion? A, a hungry lion? 
In no way. So there's, there's no way that these are gonna, these things would go together now, but the conditions that are described here are not the conditions of now. They're the conditions of the future. They're the conditions that come on the opposite part of a, a Messiah who comes and is in Jerusalem and is reigning and he's bringing peace. And, and the conditions are such that the peace even impacts, reorients, reverses, lifts the curse that's on creation so that man... And animals who once had enmity between them and were at war are, are now uh, changed back and made harmless. They, they don't eat each other anymore. Somebody can say amen to that. Uh, if you ever wanted like, to know, are there going to be animals you know, in, the, in the future? Uh, this is what this passage is saying. Yes. At the very least, they're going to be there on all my holy mountain. It says, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. Oh my goodness, what a terrifying sight. Like that's the sketchiest thing that you could ever see, right? If you were really in a situation like that, you knew there's a poisonous viper, right? In that hole, you don't want any child to come anywhere near it, especially not, you know, stick your, stick your arm down into it. And, and the picture described here is, it's going to be no problem. He's going to have fun with that snake. He's going to play with it. Uh, my, my, uh, my wife and I were with our kids, and we were uh, at, at one of the parks along the PV coast. We went up there to uh, walk around and look, and uh, there was a giant tortoise that a guy was walking. And I was like, oh, you don't see that every day, right? And I, I thought that that was really, you know, crazy and interesting. I run over to the tortoise. And he said it's like one of the biggest tortoises, like uh, desert tortoises in the world. I was like, you serious? Like I'm getting to see one of the biggest desert tortoises in the world. And, and we're just walking through the park in PV. And, and, you know, and my kids are like walking next to this turtle. I'm like, this is so cool, right? Like what a, what a scene. And, and then it got better. Then there was a giant snake. And I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Somebody was, wa was walking... <laughs> Somebody, somebody had brought their giant snake out. Uh, it was a huge, probably like eight foot boa. Uh, and they brought it out and it was slithering along the grass. And, and they're like, yeah, you guys could touch it. You guys could play with it. And so we're like, is this happening? It's for real. You never get to see this. So like run over and we like put them around, like put them around my kids' necks and we're like taking photos. But we're like, you know, some of you are screaming. Right? You're, like, you're, like, you're like, ah, we're, <laughs> we're looking at them, uh, taking these photos. But we're also like a little bit sketched out. Like, don't you dare try to pull, you know, a fast one, Mr. Boa, because like I will hack you in pieces. If you do anything to my kids, if you start to get a little bit closer, no, it's not going to happen on my watch. But I just thought that was such an, a crazy experience for me. It's not just, I don't have that in my whole life here. Uh, I need to get out more. <laughs> but the, uh, the picture is, is incredible. The most poisonous, the most dangerous, the most fierce. The, 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 the kid, it's like you had to play with them. You know, the, the thing that would make the zoo a whole lot cooler is if you could play with the animals, right? And not have a gorilla kill you, Right? Uh, so this is, this is the peaceful conditions that are described here. And look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What a picture. It's incredible. And verse 10 tells us, to describe this piece even more. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be 
glorious. There is an intentional description of, 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 of painting a picture of Eden like paradise. And this is what the king will do for his city. This is what the king will do for his nation and his resting place. By the way, where is his resting place? How about verse nine, a hint? See it? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. His resting place will be Mount Zion. His resting place will be in Jerusalem, the city that God has chosen. And there, his resting place will be glorious. There will not be a better place on earth. There will not be a more happier place on earth. Disneyland is weak sauce compared to this holy mountain that the Lord is going to, uh, is going to create. Long for it. Look for it. His resting place will be glorious. Is it here yet? Does it look glorious over there right now? No matter what happens over there, this is what it will one day be turned into. His resting place shall be glorious. And, and, and all the nations will come. And this leads to the last point, the, the third thing that he will bring. All the nations will, will, will stream to him and inquire of the Lord. They will come to the root of Jesse. They will want to travel to him. Isaiah 2 talks about how that mountain will be made the highest mountain of all the earth and the, and the Gentiles, the nations will, will go and they'll, they'll go to the Lord and the law will go forth from, from the Lord there. They'll get to see and experience this glorious resting place. And the most amazing thing beyond all that has already been said is not only that he will bring justice, not only that he will bring peace, but that he will bring a worldwide knowledge of the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord. The earth shall be full, verse nine, of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You won't have to you won't have it ever be the case where, where people are flooding and filling the land or the nations without knowing of the Lord, without understanding that he exists, without understanding that he is reigning, without understanding that he is ruling and without faith in him. Faith in him will be the primary thing that characterizes that age. This is the way that, that, that Paul describes it. It's not that every single person alive on the earth will know the Lord in a saving way yet. That, that time will come. But what is described here is what Paul describes uh, when, when the Lord in, in Romans chapter 11 when we see Israel turn back to the Lord, the promise is, is that if Israel's rejection meant riches to the Gentiles during this age, which is the age that we're living in, then how much more will their inclusion be? 
Israel will be supremely and uniquely blessed and know the Lord in a way that had never previously been done. And so also will the nations. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. So Christian, what are you excited about? What are you so thankful for? You're thankful for these promises. And you can share this with your Jewish friend. You should share this with your Jewish friend. The same promises that are their hope are the same promises that are our hope. And it centers on the person who is the promised king, the offspring of Jesse, the uniquely anointed one by the Holy Spirit who will bring justice and bring peace and bring worldwide knowledge of the Lord. And so lastly, with this last question, if Jesus then is that Messiah, as you Christians say, and he came, where is this worldwide justice? Where is this peace? Where is this knowledge of God? If you talk to anyone who's not a believer in Jesus yet, and they know the Hebrew scriptures, this is often the type of argument that they're going to make to you. And so what is your answer? I think that there's a, a lot of ways that we could answer this, multiple layers to it. And I, I don't have time to, to cover them all. But the, the, at the highest level, we have to understand that God is sovereign. And if he has promised something, he will bring it to pass. And so if God has promised something and you have not seen it fulfilled yet, is that a problem for you? It shouldn't be. Because God has promised it, it must surely come to pass. But more than that, we see that, that, that these things, uh, uh, that even though Christ came in his first coming, even though he was born of a virgin, as Isaiah 7 prophesied, even though he was a light, uh, like Isaiah 9 prophesied, even though uh, he was wonderful in counsel, and even though he was mighty in power, even though he was uniquely endowed by the Holy Spirit, there are things in our passage that are, are describing his second coming. And Jesus, not like Jesus wasn't aware of these things. He talked about these things. He preached these things. He warned about these things. He said that, that I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. How in the world could the Messiah ever say that he didn't come to be served? Is he gonna be king and all the nations are gonna bow down to him? Where do you, how can you say that, Jesus? Oh, oh, that day will come, my friend. When I, when I have been rejected, as Isaiah 53 said, when I've been offered, when I've offered my, my, my body and my blood as a sacrifice for you, just as Isaiah 53 mentioned, when I, have, when I have conquered death, when I've risen from the dead, when I've ascended to the Father's right hand, when I've poured out the Spirit on my church, and when I return, I will fulfill those things. And you do not need to worry. Do not my works. Do not my wisdom, do not my lineage, do not my pedigree, do not my teaching, do not my authority, does not my power all testify that I am truly the one promised in Isaiah 11. And if I could fulfill all of those things, which are unique things that only the Messiah could do, then will I not fulfill the other things? And Jesus promised he, he is he promised promises that he will. This is Peter's summary in Acts chapter 10. He says, it says, Peter opened his mouth. This is a summary of Jesus's ministry and the significance of it. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. And remind you, Peter's a Jew. 
He understands the Old Testament scriptures and he's speaking to Gentiles here. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Can you just appreciate the Galilee reference, Isaiah 9? Can you appreciate the anointing of the Jesus with the Holy Spirit, uh, Isaiah 11? It says he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead. On the, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that really is the offer for you. The reason why we haven't seen the justice, why we haven't seen the peace, why we haven't seen the knowledge of the glory of the Lord uh, as described in this passage is because that is still to come. But now in this age, we go and we have heard the gospel and we've received the gospel and we go and we proclaim this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, my friend, you, my neighbor, you need to be ready for this king's return. And he did everything in his first coming to prove that he was the king. And he did everything in his first coming to pay for your and my sins. He did everything that needed to be done for you to be welcomed and to be brought into his kingdom, though you've rebelled against him and sinned against him. He paid for your sins on the cross. And if all you have to do is just turn from your sin, all you have to do is just believe in him. All you have to do is just heed his invitation, which he, he, he speaks on the last day of the feast, John 7, the great feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this was, uh, he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Friend, if you're here and you haven't believed in this king yet, put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Bow your knee to him. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You don't know if today is your last day. You don't know if tomorrow's your last day. You don't know if someone's gonna murder you. You don't know if you're gonna get in an accident. Every single one of us, our life right now is just hanging. It's just hanging in the balance. And the only reason that we get to go forward another day or another moment is by the sheer mercy and grace of God. And so we would do well, we would be wise to be ready to meet him. So call upon his name. There's no one who puts their trust in him that will ever be put to shame. If you put your faith in him, you will be saved. He did everything that he needed to do. Hebrews chapter two, 
says that, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him, speaking of Christ. He left nothing outside his control. And he goes on, he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you put your faith in him, he's tasted death for you. He tasted death for me. You see, a great king will, not, will shepherd his people. He will go to battle for his people he will even die to save his people. And he will rise in victorious triumph to lead his people righteously, to go and to establish his kingdom, to do all that has been promised to him. And after that, to establish a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where there's no more pain and no more tears and no more crying and no more sin and no more wickedness and no more evil, but only uh, the, the perfect loving relationship of, of being together with God's people and with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we will see his face and we will reign with him forever and ever. Revelation 22 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, we thank you that no, there's nothing that man can do to stop what is coming. There's nothing that any political leader, uh, any president, any king can do, Lord. Though the nations rage, Lord, though they, they, they try to push you off, though they try to reject these truths and suppress these truths, Lord, we know, Lord, what you've promised. And so we're filled with joy, that we've already tasted, that we've already seen, that we're already experiencing blessings, Lord, that you have promised for us and that we are now as a church giving the world a glimpse, a prophetic view of what your coming kingdom is gonna be like and how it's gonna be saturated with the spirit and saturated with justice and saturated with peace and saturated with the knowledge of God. Lord, may we go and may we invite people and may we tell them to come. May they come to you May they behold you and may they, may, may they not fear anything, Lord. Not death, not being conquered, not losing their homes, not losing their livelihoods. But may they run to you, Lord, who, who are a crucified and resurrected king who gives us eternal life and a permanent place in your kingdom. We praise you for that and thank you for that gift of your son this Christmas. In Jesus' name. Amen.